Well, it's good to be with all of you. I am Pastor Mike Graham, if we have not had the chance to meet. Uh, today, we're going to continue in our First John series. The title of the sermon today is, Are You Certain? And then the title today will be Certain Obedience. The reason why we picked First John is we've just found as a church, there's lots of churches who preach and teach that you can lose your salvation, that there's no assurance that Jesus has got you with both hands. And there's many believers that spend every single day in fear, wondering, is this the day that I lose my salvation? Is this the day where I disappoint God to the point where there's no coming back? So 1 John teaches us that there is certainty and there's assurance in our relationship with God. Uh, Throughout this series, and this is the last of our sermon series, we've been looking at identifying marks of a true believer. Pastor Matt has been calling them birthmarks. As we're born again spiritually, there are certain birthmarks that every Christian has. And today, kind of the theme will be, a particular birthmark is that followers of Jesus desire to live like Jesus. Followers of Jesus desire to live like Jesus. And when we see this in someone's life, it's an identifying marker that you truly have believed in the Lord. Before we jump forward into this topic, I'd like to go back a little bit and look at what we've learned as we've gone through 1 John. And in doing so, we set ourselves up to really go deep into this topic. When you study a book of the Bible, you typically want to look at two things right off the bat. One is the occasion. What's going on with the audience? This is a church. This is a a letter to a church. What's happening in that church, the occasion? And secondly, you want to look at the purpose. What is the author intending to accomplish in writing the letter? So let's first look at the occasion. Imagine if you've got some kids ready to send off to college. And I know some of you do have kids that are about ready to go to college. So they head off, and about 6 to 12 months later, you find out that they're hanging with a crowd that's teaching some very strange things. And all of a sudden, this crowd is starting to do things that they never would have done when your kids were with you at home in high school. What are you gonna do? You're gonna get in contact with your kids, right? You're gonna ask questions, you're gonna push them, you're gonna challenge them with what they know to be true. And in a very real way, that's exactly what's happening here. They're just not college kids. So there are some people in this church to which this letter is going that are shaking the church. They're preaching a false gospel to this church. John goes so far in this letter to call them antichrists. And they're saying things like this. True spirituality comes from some secret or special spiritual knowledge that only some receive. This true spirituality is only for a select few. Not everyone gets access to it. They go on to say that if you reach this second tier of spirituality, then you live above right and wrong. You live above biblical ethics. You pretty much can live however you want and do whatever you want. This is a false gospel. This is the opposite of what we're going to look at today. So this poor church is left confused, and they're struggling. Why? Because a false gospel is being preached, and a false gospel is being spread. So John needs to combat this false teaching and to clarify for this church, what does a true Christian look like And how do I know if I'm one of them? So the purpose, the purpose of John's letter is to teach them how they can know, how they can know and know and know with certainty that they are true Christians. And then he describes how true Christians believe and act and think. 
So in this confusion being created by the false teachers, it is John's goal to give them certainty and to give them clarity. Both of those things are necessary to help them move forward in knowing the gospel and living out that gospel. So in terms of certainty, he says, for a true believer, this is what you must believe. And then he'll go on to say, this then is how you must live. When it comes to certainty, the verse from 1 John chapter 5, verse 11, we've talked about this several times in this series because it's a go-to. It kind of summarizes the point of the whole book and it speaks to certainty. It says this, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. Notice, this is not future tense. It doesn't say God will give us eternal life. It says God has given us eternal life. It's theirs. It's yours. It's present tense. And this life is in his son. It's not found anywhere. There aren't multiple ways to find this eternal life. It's found in one place. It's in his son. And whoever has this son has the life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have the life. It's kind of like a spiritual, simple math equation, like a two plus two equals four. Whoever has the son equals they have, present tense, the life. Verse 13 He says why he writes not just these things in verses 11 and 12, but these things refer to everything that he's written. I write these things. I've written this whole book to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know, that you may know that you have eternal life, that there is certainty and assurance for you because you have the Son. So to have the Son means that you've believed in the name of the Son of God. And that person has assurance. They have certainty. And he wants them to have that certainty. Just like I want you to have that certainty. If you're sitting at home right now, and you've maybe been watching us for a while, and you're just not really sure where you stand spiritually, or maybe you're here this morning and you're asking those same questions, my encouragement to you is to hold on to this gospel that John has preached. And the gospel is this is that God has created all things and he created in goodness. And we had this relationship with God, but because of sin, which is rebellion against God, everything has been broken, including our vertical relationship with God himself. God did not leave us in that situation. He sent his son, this son, Jesus Christ, to come to earth as a man, both son of God, son of man, and he lives a perfect life. He then dies on the cross, The sin that you and I have committed and continue to commit, the Bible says that the consequence of that sin is separation from God forever and punishment. So on that cross, Jesus takes that punishment. He even goes through a moment of separation from the Father and dies. Three days later, he raises from the dead. And the Bible's clear. If you place your faith in Jesus as the one who can save you from your sins, the one who died in your place, and you call him Lord, then you are saved. You have the Son, and therefore you have eternal life. You have assurance of your salvation. So he wants certainty. He also wants clarity. John then seeks to be as clear as possible by giving example after example of what it looks like to be a true Christian. So, so far through this series, of 1 John, we've learned multiple things. So I'm gonna kind of just really quickly tap on the different things we've learned up to this point, and then we're gonna go deeper into our point for today. So far we've learned true Christians will 
have fellowship with the Lord, which produces joy. A true Christian isn't nervous, wondering if they're going to fall away, wondering if God's going to let them go. In fact, they love this fellowship and it produces joy from this assurance. Also, a true Christian lives a life of repentance and faith. When we first come to know Jesus, we repent and we believe. But it's not the last time we do that. The first time we do it, we do it for salvation. But from then on, we do it for deep fellowship and ongoing communion with the Lord. So we live a life of getting right with the Lord. And if you live a life like that, it's because you are a believer and you can have assurance in your relationship with the Lord. Also, we have new desires for things of God. When we become a Christian, God changes us from the inside out. Our heart actually changes. Also, we learn that if we're a true believer, we never let go of Jesus because he never lets go of us ever, even through the hard things. Also, as a true believer, we both receive God's love, and then we reflect and give that love to others. Also, a true believer will trust in Jesus, even in those uncertain, difficult times. And then today, we're going to focus on this. Followers of Jesus desire to live like Jesus. These are like all of those identifying marks of a believer, those birthmarks for those who've been born new, born again by God himself. Now this truth, followers of Jesus desire to live like Jesus, are taught in multiple places in 1 John. We're going to focus on chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. So 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 starts like this. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. I want you to notice that this is present tense. We can know right now. Right now, present tense, we can know that we've come to know him. How? If we keep his commands. So again, the title of this sermon is Certain Obedience. So those who've come to know him will keep his commands, but certain obedience does not mean perfect obedience. If certain obedience means perfect obedience, I'll be the first one to say I'm out. I've already failed today. And I would guess I'm not the only one to raise their hand here or at home. If it's perfect obedience, none of us will be successful. But it's a direction. It's a life of trying to be obedient. So let's remember the context here. As we've looked back at 1 John chapter 1 in previous sermons, we learn that every Christian has sinned and every Christian continues to sin. So perfect obedience is not the expectation, but it's this life of while we struggle with sin, we keep going back to Jesus and back to Jesus. In chapter one, it describes it this way. It says that either we walk in the darkness or we walk in the light. So what that looks like is if we walk in the darkness, we keep moving in this direction of walking away from Jesus, doing whatever we want, however we want. That's the opposite of what a true Christian does. A true Christian is going to walk in the light. And again, that's not perfection. It's moving in a direction where you're trying to grow. You're trying to be obedient. And when you fail, you repent and believe and trust in faith. And then you take another step forward. So it's a motion. It's a movement. It's a trajectory. It's not perfection. So we're called to walk in the light. So this person who keeps his commands, they don't do it perfectly but they continually, ongoingly are making the effort to do so. So certain obedience is different from perfect obedience. Again, as we go into our next verse, the main idea is followers of Jesus desire to live like Jesus. So chapter two, verse four, 
Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, he's a liar, and the truth is not in that person. So here are these first two words. It says, whoever says. In chapter one, three different times, John says, if we claim, and each time he said, if we claim, he basically teaches us what the false teachers are saying, and then he refutes it. This is similar to that. Here he's saying, whoever says, because there are people there saying this, and then John will go on to refute this. So this concept here of knowledge of him or knowledge of a divine being back you know, in ancient days when this was written, it's a little different than the way you and I would describe it or talk about it today. You and I would often use the word knowledge to talk about what we know in our head, intellectual knowledge. Back then, when people would talk about knowing something spiritual, usually it was experiential, almost mystical, something that you couldn't describe with words. So even here, he's showing that there are people there saying, I've had this experience. I've had this moment where everything just kind of lined up for me spiritually. This is also in the past tense. In the Greek, it's in the past tense. This is someone saying, I had some experience at some point, and it was spiritual. I can't really put words to it, but it changed me, and it changed me so that I think I can live however I want. Someone's claiming, I know him, but I'm not doing what Jesus has commanded. So what John does here is he crushes this person. He says, you are a liar. The truth is not in you. So he's basically setting up the false teacher. This is what they're saying. It's all wrong. John trashes this way of thinking. This person is a liar. The truth is not in them. In verse 3, he reminded us, if you think back to verse 3, it says, those who know him, and it's a present tense know. This is a past tense know. Those who know Jesus is always a present tense no. Not a past tense, it's a present tense no. So when I know Jesus, is something that is true of me today. It's true of me yesterday, and it'll be true of me tomorrow. It's not some experience, it's not something mystical that happened at a moment in time. It's a relationship that changes everything. When you and I meet Jesus, it's not head knowledge. It changes my head, my heart, my hands, everything about me. When you and I meet Jesus, it simply changes everything. So, what about the person who claims to know Jesus or make a decision for Jesus, but then there is absolutely no life change? What do we say to that person? Biblically, to be honest, there is no assurance for someone who claims to have made a decision and then their life does not change. You cannot find a verse that says that there's zero life change. Faith is not raising your hand. Faith is not walking down an aisle. In Romans 10, 9, it says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So there's a vocal external component but there's also an internal heart change. The mouth says one thing and then the heart says something. You are Lord and I believe that you are who you said that you are. You're my savior, you're my Lord. Those are the people 
who are changed by Jesus. It's not just, wow, I probably should raise my hand so they stop singing that song. Or I'm going to walk down the aisle to make my parents happy. Sometimes people make decisions that aren't based upon life change, but sometimes based upon pressure. Here's a group of buddies of mine from high school. I'm the guy in the shorts. Here to the right, that's Dan. The tallest guy in the back with the hat, that's Matt. Those are guys that I saw come to know Christ when I was in high school. Both of them led their brothers to Jesus. And since then, for decades, they've been making disciples who make disciples. They placed their faith in Jesus and everything about them changed. The guy to my left and the guy in the back with his finger up, they also made decisions for Jesus in that they raised a hand. The very next day and going forward, I could not tell any difference in their life. What they said, what they cared about, how they acted, how they treated people, there was no change. Now, only God knows their heart. But if one of those two guys came up to me and said, so do you think I'm saved? And I asked the question, has your life changed in any way? And they say, no, I do not feel comfortable giving them an assurance of their salvation. The other two guys whose lives have been radically changed, absolutely. We know that you're saved because your life has been changed. And we read in verse three, if you know him, you will obey his commands. So this is a hard thing as Christians. You probably have people in your mind, like I do, who have made a claim, but you never saw any life change. Biblically, we pray for them. We share the gospel to them. We love them but we can't give that particular person assurance. Verse five, it says, but if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. So obeys his word. This right here is a present active participle. Sorry, every once in a while I'm gonna nerd out. It's a present active participle. What that means though, because it's significant, is that this is a continuous, ongoing, repeated action. A Christian will obey God's word ongoingly, again and again, with effort, repeatedly, if they know God. A Christian keeps going for it. They keep after it. It's an ongoing thing. It's different than saying, oh, I know him. I had some experience that we read in verse four. John says the Christian ongoingly, repeatedly tries to obey God's word. So it's not perfect, but it certainly points to a lifestyle. So we've discussed those whose lives have had no change. What about those who are backsliders? What about backsliders? Again, when I say that, you probably have several faces that pop in your mind. Those who have claimed a decision, changed to some extent for a period of time, and now you can't really tell where they are spiritually. They moved forward spiritually, and then they kind of slid back. All of us at some point have probably been backsliders to some extent for a, a minute or for a day or for a week or for a couple months or a couple years. All of us have struggled, but what do we say someone who appears to be in the middle of sliding backwards? How do we treat that person? What do we say to them? What's their next step? How do we love them? Let me throw a couple thoughts at you based upon what we're learning here in this passage. One, again, we cannot know with certainty or judge their heart. Only God truly knows where they stand. I have several people in my life that I love very dearly, 
that I'm very connected to, and I would describe them this way right now. I don't know where they are spiritually. I know it looked like they were true believers at one point in their life, and I just don't know where they are now. I can't judge their heart. Only God can. But there's the reality that sometimes some people, when they make that decision or think they're making a decision, they clean up the outside, but there's no change on the inside. Sometimes they clean up the outside with no change on the inside. Well, why would someone do this? Sometimes people make decisions to conform to a group or they fall to pressure. Uh, There are people that respond not to Jesus, but to parents, to friends, to what they feel like a pastor in a church is trying to make them do. So for a period of time, there's some change, but that change might not be to worship and honor Jesus or in response to loving Jesus. It might be to fit a standard of a group. It might be to avoid criticism. It might be just living up to some external expectations of the people around them. So externally changed behavior for a period of time is not enough to know with certainty that someone is saved. That's why John referenced in this verse, it's an ongoing, repeated action of obeying the word of God. So then how do we best love this person? Or if you and I backslide, how can someone best love one of us? Number one, the Bible teaches us to call one another back to holiness. We don't just let that person drift. We actually say to them in a loving way with both grace and truth, hey, I'm concerned with the decision you're making. I'm concerned with the words that you're using. I'm concerned with the way you're treating your spouse or your kids or your neighbor or your dog or whatever the situation is, there is legitimate concern. And then there's care. In Matthew 18, Jesus lays out a process for those who are members and deeply connected to the church of church discipline. The person who sees the person falling, they go and talk to the person. No response, two or three go and talk to that person. No response, the church goes and talks to that person to win them back to Jesus, not to make them feel bad, not to condemn them, but rather to restore them, to bring them back to Jesus and into fellowship with both him and with his church. But if someone has backslidden and they're not connected to a church, you still go to them. They may ignore you. They may not respond. But ultimately, we cannot judge where they are with the Lord. So we continue to love them back to the gospel. We demonstrate the love of Jesus. We give them the words of Jesus. We go after them. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, this is a verse written to Christians. Not non-Christians, we use it that way, but this is actually written to Christians. It says, if we, Christians, confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John, in this passage, has just talked about Christians walking in the light and the fact that walking in the light does not mean perfection. So for a Christian who's attempting to obey God's word, there's going to be moments where they're successful and moments where they stumble and fall. And when you stumble and fall, you confess those sins and he is faithful and just and will forgive you those sins. So for that person who maybe is backslidden, take them here again and again. Give them hope. Give them a pathway to restoration to Jesus or possibly a pathway to salvation if they've never truly believed. Verse 5. Back to verse five. So we've looked at the first part. If anyone obeys his word, the second part says this, love for God is truly made complete in them. 
So those who ongoingly obey God's word, love for God is then made complete in that person. How is obedience biblically connected to love? Now, let's remember the Pharisees. The Pharisees were introduced to us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And those dudes did everything they could to clean up the exterior. According to the law, they were perfect. They even wrote extra laws and they obeyed those too. So they obeyed the ones that God gave them and they obeyed the ones they just made it for themselves. So outwardly, it didn't get any better than a Pharisee. They were killing it when it comes to outward obedience. But every time Jesus bumped into them, he seemed frustrated. He didn't respond and say, good job, guys. He'd look at them and say things like this, you are a brood of vipers. At one point, he looked at them and said, you are whitewashed tombs full of dead man's bones. In other words, you've cleaned up the outside. But if I look into the inside, it smells like death. It's filled with dead man's bones, meaning what's going on on the inside is just as important as what's going on on the outside when it comes to obedience. Jesus describes the transformation process as an inside-out transformation. Obedience is connected to love because obedience should come from a heart that's in love with Jesus. Hear that again. Obedience is connected to love because obedience comes from a heart in love with Jesus. And John says in in the book of John, Jesus says this, John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. If you've ever been a teacher or a parent or a grandparent or just tried to teach somebody something, you'll learn that repetition is a great way to help people understand stuff. So verse 21 of the same chapter, Jesus says it again in a different way. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Repetition. Well, two times wasn't enough. Verse 23. Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Jesus pushes these two things together. You can't pull them apart. Love for him and obedience are intimately connected together. If you're being obedient for the wrong reason, you're really not being obedient. But if your obedience is an overflow of your love for Jesus, he's like, you get it. The transformation process is happening. You're being changed from the inside out. And that's what a true believer looks like. Followers of Jesus, notice I connected something here at the end. Followers of Jesus desire to live like Jesus for a reason, because they love him. Followers of Jesus desire to live like Jesus because they simply all out love Jesus. So Pharisees, they didn't meet outward expectations. But believers, hopefully you and I, anyone who has the Son, we are obedient because inwardly we love him and we want to express it outwardly. Verse five, the second part of verse five into verse six, it says this. This is how we know we are in him. So again, John's trying to make it clear. How do you know if you're truly saved? This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus has lived. So there are false teachers saying, I know him, and they're doing whatever they want. He's saying, if you really do know him, present tense know him, you're going to live like Jesus. 
Now, these words are similar to the words of Jesus. As Jesus begins to leave and to return to the Father at the end of his ministry in Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20, he gives this great commission. And in this great commission, he tells us about obedience. It says, go or while you're going, therefore make disciples. In this whole passage, make disciples is the imperative. This is the thing that he wants you to do. So go therefore and do this, make disciples of who? All nations. Well, Jesus, how do we make disciples? He answers that question by baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In other words, share the gospel. Share the gospel. Second thing, by teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. So as a Christian, you are called to both be taught and to teach. As a Christian, you're going to have a life as a learner. You are called to do, not just to know, but to do all that Jesus has commanded. You are going to spend the rest of your life being a learner, and you will spend the rest of your life helping those around you to know all that Jesus has commanded. And then we hold one another accountable to doing those things, all of those things. So it's more than just knowing, it must be a progression to action, teaching them to do all that I've commanded. So to be spiritually mature is to live and to act like Jesus. Maturity looks like Jesus. So if you ever hear someone try to describe what Christian maturity looks like and it doesn't sound like this, you probably don't want to listen to it. Ultimately, spiritual maturity, Christian maturity looks like Jesus. He says, have them do all that I have commanded. And when we walk in the footsteps of Jesus, listen to his words and do what he says, we end up looking more and more like him. When I was in high school, it was kind of a dorky t-shirt, but I had this t-shirt. And on the front, it said, 1 John 2.6. And on the back, and again, 1 John 2.6 says, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. And on the back of the shirt, it just said, don't talk the talk if you can't walk the walk. Okay, so that was a shirt that I had. And for me, it was a reminder because most of the people in my school, I went to a very public school. Most of the people in the school knew I was a Christian. And that was... I don't know if I'd wear that t-shirt today, but at the time, it was a reminder. If I'm going to claim Jesus at any moment during my day, people should be able to see me act and live like Jesus. So some thoughts kind of as we wrap up. How do we practically live our lives so as to experience this inward-out transformation? Remember, followers of Jesus desire to live like Jesus for a reason, because they love him. So how do we start living our lives with this ongoing obedience to his word? One, do this. Find spiritual friends. If you've heard me teach before, you've heard me say that before. I want you to have in your life friends who love Jesus and love you. If you don't have that, you're going to have a hard time living a life of obedience. We never walk alone with Jesus. We always walk with others as we walk with Jesus. Even when Jesus was here on earth, there were always groups of people following him together. So there was horizontal relationships along with that vertical relationship with Jesus. Two, find godly biblical teachers to learn from consistently. Here at Bible Center, we go out of our way to provide tons of options for you. We have 
over 80 core classes you can find on our app or on our website that teach you tons of things about walking with Jesus. Go after those. We also have online and on our website several, I think like eight to 10 different verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. Jump in, go deep, and then find other teachers that will also help you grow along the way. There's podcasts, there's sermons, there's books. If you've been in my office, I have a lot of books. Why? Because I'm a lifelong learner because I want to live like Jesus. Number three, I want you to find a rhythm of reading. What I mean by that is I want you in God's word consistently. That doesn't happen unless you have some rhythm in your life that works for you. Do you have to read the Bible in the morning? You don't have to. Do you have to read it at night? No, but you have to read it sometime. So find the thing that works for you. Maybe it's in your car, listening to it. Maybe it's first thing when you wake up. Find a rhythm that works and stick to it. Use those spiritual friends to hold you accountable. So as we close up 1 John, this is what I want for you. I want you to know that you know that you have the Son. Because if you have the Son, you have the life. You have assurance, you have security. God doesn't want you to wake up every morning in fear, dreading, is this the day? where I walk away from him? Is this the day where he lets go of me? God hasn't designed us to live in fear. He's designed us to live in faith. So we look at these different things in 1 John. Is there a desire in me to obey God? That doesn't come from the flesh. That only comes from God. If there's a desire in you, though you won't do it perfectly, you can know that you are a believer because only Jesus gives you that desire and only Jesus gives you the ability to live out that desire and be obedient. So I want you to have assurance, believer. If you're sitting there today and you don't have assurance because you've never made a decision for Jesus, you don't know if you have the Son. That is your next step. If you're at home, I want you to contact Matt Garrison, the online pastor. He would love to talk to you and help you. If you are here today and you want to have a conversation about whether or not you have the Son, I'll be right out front. Come talk to me. I can't imagine a better conversation to have. Let me pray for you and let me pray for our assurance. Father, we come before you. We ask that you would, in the hearts of those who have believed, give them a firm and strong assurance of their salvation in you. It's not based on them. It's based on you and your power and the fact that you won't let go of them. So God, give them that assurance. Let them not live a life of fear. And for those who have not yet believed, call them to belief. May they say out loud to you, even now, Jesus, you are my Savior. You are my Lord. And may their heart express belief in you. Move in hearts today. We love you and we trust you. In Christ's name, amen. For more information, visit us at BibleCenterChurch.com or check us out on social media. You can also join us in person for services on Thursday at 7 p.m. or Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m.